Okay, today's reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along in your Bibles, or as the text is presented on the screens above. A few days later, when Jesus and again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So that's our little reminder each week that we are going to be talking about sex in some fashion today. And if that's news to you, this is the gracious time to get up and leave if that doesn't fit um, with the, the context of your life. Maybe uh, you're with someone that, um, that... Anyway, we're going to be talking about it's adult, but it's not, it's not R-rated. It's PG, okay? There's kind of the idea. Okay, Baron and Dina, come on up right now. Baron and Dina Strom live in the Mount Vernon area. Baron is a middle school teacher. Dina is a hospice chaplain. And uh, they are both credentialed in the Evangelical Covenant Church, of which we are a part. And they have a story to tell. And uh, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm going to let you take it from here. Thank you for clapping. (laughs) Um, So as Pastor Mark said, my name is Dina, and we're going to together, Berent and I, reflect on the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man in Mark chapter 2. And it's a story that Berent and I really resonate with in our own marriage. So we're going to look at the text. We're going to dig in just as those friends dug through the roof, and we're also going to be vulnerable about our story. And so it's really our hope that God's word, that our vulnerability and story will somehow be helpful, maybe even instructive and inspiring. So would you join me as we pray before we get going? Loving God, we thank you that you are the author of life, of love, of forgiveness and healing. I pray that your word would speak to us today, that you would edit any words from our mouths that are not helpful, and that you would be glorified. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So I always think it's helpful to look at what's happened right before the text, 
that we're going to look at. And if you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, you know that it really starts with a bang, or literally a shout. Um, there's no nativity scene, there's no 12-year-old Jesus hanging out with rabbis, but John the Baptist shouting that people needed to repent because the Messiah was right on his heels. And right on cue, Jesus enters stage right and gets baptized by John, calls his first disciples, and has been in the synagogue the very next Sunday, preaching with authority and healing a man of a demon, healing him of his spiritual torment. So word begins to spread immediately, just in the very first chapter of Mark, that Jesus is this person who, who heals suffering of all kinds, all kinds of physical diseases. And it ends with, that first chapter ends with Jesus healing the leper, the social outcast, forced to live on the edges of the village. So he's healed physically of his leprosy, and he's also healed spiritually and emotionally and relationally of being an outcast and invited back in. So in just one chapter, it's clear that Jesus isn't this Messiah who's going to overthrow the Romans. Jesus is setting people free from destructive forces that enslave them. He's healing these people. And there are some who are already in the in crowd who are getting a front row seat. And then there's those on the edges who kind of are just trying to get a glimpse. So it's no wonder in Mark's, cha- in Mark's second chapter that Jesus is probably wanting a little break, so it says that he goes home to Capernaum. But it's too late. He's already a rock star, and the crowds are there. And we've heard the text, and now we're going to hear a little bit more. So I like, uh, I like reading a text and uh, finding myself in it, somehow uh, kind of adding color to it. Sometimes when you read a story, it just sort of washes over you and you kind of go, "Uh uh-huh. Or perhaps you've read the story a few times and you're like, oh yeah, I know that story. But perhaps it's good to just kind of look in and see where you're at in it. One of the things that we found in in this text is that we find our own story. So uh, you'll you'll get a little bit of that as as I walk through it. First, the paralytic. The guy's a complete loser. He's got nothing. Uh, He's he's a drain on his community, on his family, on his friends. He can't do anything. It's not like he has the internet and he can look up Amazon and order whatever he needs for the day. Everybody has to do everything for him. And then he has four friends, four buddies. And there's a ringleader. And this is the part that I love most, is these four guys. And we're going to get to this in our story, is the people who carried us when we found ourselves on the mat. These four guys, there had to have been one guy who was like, hey, you know what? There was this, there's this guy named Jesus, and he's showing up in, in Capernaum. And he's come home. Remember we heard about him? And, and actually, I've heard that he's starting to like do some crazy stuff healing people. We should take, and I don't know the guy's name. I mean, the guy doesn't even have a name in the story. That's how much of a nobody he is. And so they pick him up. We'll just call him John. And so they pick John up. And they, or they show up at his house and they go, hey, John, Jesus is in town. And this guy, I think, could do the trick. And I always think about John at this point going, guys, come on. Nothing's ever worked. I'm just, I'm just bound to be on this mat all my life. You guys go have fun. Forget about me. And he says, 
No, dude, this is our chance. Let's go. And so they pick him up, bobbling down the road, and they, they get to the house, and it is packed. Not anywhere to go. And I imagine the guy on the mat goes, Guys, let, just take me home. It's a waste of time. We're not even going to get close to Jesus. And I love this part. That the one guy, the ringleader, he goes, and remember, this is just holy imagining. He goes, you know what? Last week, I wanted to get a skylight in. And so I had one of my buddies come along and they dug a hole. And I got sun in the morning in the kitchen. It's great. We could do that. We could lower him through the roof. And you can imagine the guy on the mat goes, whoa, no, this is a bad idea. And so they start going up on the roof and he's tilted and he's like, what's going on? And they put him up there. And inside the house, because those roofs were made of like mud and stick and whatnot, all of a sudden there's some like dust coming down. People start looking up and and a little hole breaks through. And now they've got ropes and they, they start to lower him down. And it's crowded in there and they start to pull apart just a little bit. And at this point, Jesus stops. And he says this. Having seen their faith, He heals the guy. But before healing him, he says, I forgive your sins. You know that this is a little side note, but I always like saying this. You know how everybody says that you need to make sure that you've said a prayer to receive Jesus into your heart so you can, you know, your personal (laughs) Lord and Savior. In this case, this guy doesn't say any prayer. He's saved because of having great friends. That is true for us. So then... There was some murmuring and some religious leaders, pastors, priests, people like that. And they don't like it. <laughs> only, a, only God can forgive sins. And, and Jesus knows this. He like looks at them and is like, all right, just to put you a little bit more on edge, son, pick up your mat and get out of here. And I, the guy's on the mat. All of a sudden, there must have been like a tingle in his body. Like all of a sudden, my legs work. And he gets up. He picks up the mat and walks out. And you can imagine the crowd just goes, <laughs> bang, right through the door. And here's the part that's my favorite. It's not in the text. <laughs> but the guys on the roof, what did they do? They must have flown off that roof, jumped down. I mean, are they chest bumping, high fiving? Like, I told you, you were going to get better. And he did. That's the story. And it is the story that we experienced in the midst of our life. On February 27th, and here we transition to what happened with us. On February 27th, 2007, almost 12 years ago now, I was confronted with the reality that I had made a mess of our marriage. Truth be told, I'd been making a mess of it for quite some time, never truly being honest. So I can remember as if it was yesterday, I had just returned from the corner store. Dina had said we needed some milk, so I had headed out, got it. And when I came back into the kitchen, I could see in her eyes 
that I had been found out. The kids were at the table, and we kind of kept it together through dinner. And then we sat on the couch as our kids went to bed. And my wife asked, what have you done? And I responded, I've made a bleeping mess of our marriage. It was without a doubt a disaster. It was paralyzing. We're in the midst of planting a covenant church in Corvallis, Oregon, and from the outside, things seemed like they were going very well. We'd been meeting for a couple of years. We'd had our 100th worship gathering. 200-plus people had attended in a cool, old performing arts theater. But then it was over. The performance had come to an end, and I just wanted to duck into a shadow, find a way to hide the brokenness of my life, but there was no hiding Because of my infidelity, my sexual sin, my unfaithfulness, I fully expected that our marriage would be over, that I'd be living apart from my family, finished. Career, over. Husband, over. Present dad, no longer. Status, destroyed. Reputation, in shambles. A profound shame settled over me. Sitting paralyzed on that couch, I can't really overstate that all was lost. And I cannot say with certainty what exactly happened next, except that Dina left a a crack through which grace, mercy, kindness broke into our midst. And so we're going to talk about four different people who carried us in our journey into the presence of Jesus And I hope that in telling about these four that you'll hear hope. That however disastrous your life may be in your marriage or in a neighbor's marriage or in a friend's marriage, I believe that hope is possible. That hope is the anthem of the soul. That there is an opportunity for all things to be made right. So metaphorically speaking, I was laying on the pallet. I arrived two days later on Mercer Island to meet at the Covenant offices, to meet with uh, my bosses, Mark Novak and Don Robinson. And I told them of my sin. I resigned. And the ECC, the Evangelical Covenant, picked me up. I was cared for. A community that was committed. The ECC, our church, the well, and the North Pacific Conference or now Pacific Northwest Conference, they cared for us. And in particular, Don Robinson, who I know had a place in this church. Don, uh, Don was probably the most significant person in my life in carrying us. Somehow they, they orchestrated six months of severance pay. Should have been two weeks. They should have said, hey, thanks for the effort, out the door. That's what I expected. They said, hey, we'll take care of you. You guys get well. Do whatever you need to do. You don't need to do anything else. Just focus on healing up yourselves and your marriage. Healthcare, even after the six months passed, I had a new job. I needed, uh, I needed to have a little bit of time, and they said, hey, we'll kick in an extra two months for healthcare. There was no worry that, they, that we needed to have. They took care of those things. They asked within our church if there would be three couples that would be willing to sit with us on a weekly basis. Three couples that knew the extent of the sin. So the Theses, the Toloyos, and the Connors, they signed up. 
and they met with us. It wasn't like we sat around and had wine and giggled and played cards. (laughs) They sat in our mess with us, and they're still friends today. And then I got a therapist, a counselor. I remember meeting with him, and he asked me what I expected, and I said it would be something like goodwill hunting. You know, we'd both get something out of it. (laughs) And um, it wasn't like that. (laughs) It turns out that he had done his doctoral work in uh, clergy infidelity. It was like the perfect fit. And he met with me for two years, every other week individually, and then every other week in a group session. He met occasionally with Dina and myself. And the covenant paid for all of it. It was a gift, a gift that we can never really repay. So when communities like you ask us to speak, we just say, yes, absolutely. We were cared for, and we love that our story could possibly give hope to others. The second person who carried us, the second person who carried us were words of hope that different people expressed to us. And I'll share one in particular. As a kid, I grew up going to a Bible camp, a nice little conservative camp, talked about heaven and hell, all those sorts of things, super nice. We had memory verses, earned patches, it was great. And there was a guy there, his name was Pete Matthews. Pete was this cool 30-something-year-old guy, and he was all that in a bag of chips. And he would, uh, I was a little guy at the time, and he took me out crawdad hunting. Crawdads are those little guys like that. And it was on this lake with a lagoon, and he took me crawdad hunting, and I love Pete. Pete was like my hero. I love that guy. And, uh, you know, we kind of paths crossed over the years, and now I'm an adult. I'm in my 30s at the time. And... Uh, Our family went back to this camp uh, together as a family camp, and uh, my parents were there, and my brother and sister-in-law were there, and we're all having a nice time. I really wasn't. I wasn't having a good time. It was still painful, and I had been kind of a a rock star, church planter, all that kind of stuff, and and now I was this uh, paralytic dude on on the pallet. Remember the word loser? I felt pretty bad about myself, as you can imagine, and um they were doing worship songs, and it was nice, and everybody was having you know, these wonderful feelings about belonging and loving, and I'm sitting there going, I am a complete disaster. I do not belong at all. And people are standing you know, and clapping and raising hands and all that you know, church stuff, and I'm not feeling it. And there's a, a space next to me that's empty. And it turned out that Pete was there. Pete was now in his early 60s. He had grandkids and he was there with his family, and we'd kind of cross paths a few times during the week, and he sat down next to me, and he put his hand on me, gently, and then he leaned close, and he spoke a word of life that I have held to this day, and he said this, Berndt, God is fond of you. Laying on that mat... Pete's words were an affirmation of God's forgiveness of my sins. It was as if those words, God healed my brokenness. God is fond of you. The journey on the mat is a long one. I don't want to say that within six months all was good. It took years. I am grateful to all those who showed grace, mercy, and kindness to me. In the midst of the journey, I was put uh, not only on care, but also on discipline. I lost my covenant credentials for a number of years. The covenant just cared for me, 
There was no promise of anything in the future. A few years back, uh, I did uh, become recredentialed and have the opportunity to speak occasionally like this. And I am grateful to the covenant for having seen God at work in my life through their hands and feet, doing good work in our lives. I am glad to be able to say today that not only is God fond of me, but he's fond of you. That God is a God of hope. So um, I'm going to just continue. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard even 12 years later to hear it. Again, even though it happened to me, I'm like, whoa, that happened. And I think when we look at the story in Mark 2, we see that Jesus really is the starring figure. But the friends deserve Oscars for supporting actors. I mean, in our lives, there would be no coming to Jesus without the friends carrying our mat. And these friends really were, like Barrett was talking about, they were big-hearted, they were brazen, they were believing. Jesus says, it's their faith that's healing you. And I've thought throughout my life as a Christian, as a pastor, as a chaplain, gosh, I wish I could have been there and been an eyewitness to Jesus' miracles. And then the crisis hits in our lives, and we're there. We're on the mat. I was on that mat, too. Obviously, when there's sexual sin in a marriage, it doesn't affect just one person. It it affects the spouse. It affects the siblings. It affects the children. And so I was that paralyzed person needing to be carried to Jesus. And to be honest, there were ways in which I was paralyzed for years. I had kind of taken the script from my family of origin and from my years working for a um, parachurch organization that I should present myself well in society, that um, I don't know if you remember the little last page of the Four Spiritual Laws that says, um, fact, faith, feeling, that we put our faith in the facts, not in our feelings. So I had developed in my mind that feelings were somehow not to be trusted, that we um, as Christians should actually probably stuff our feelings, kind of like um, if you've seen, you know, the typical pastor's wife who kind of looks good on the outside, but maybe is a mess inside, that was me. Not that all pastor's wives are like that at all. (laughs) I just had fallen into a trap that I created for myself. I was dutiful, I was loyal, and I was emotionally truncated. And for about 20 years, I could probably count the number of times I had cried on one hand. And some of those were at McDonald's commercials during the Olympics. (laughs) But really, when this happened in our lives, there really wasn't an option not to be real. Our lives had gone off the rails, and everybody thought that I would be a mess, and I didn't disappoint them. So my image of God... um, really was kind of blown apart in this experience. I kind of didn't know what was real anymore. When you, when you experience a big betrayal, it's hard to know. I mean, I remember thinking, is there a God? You know, just kind of the rug was taken out from under me. And that verse in Proverbs 17:17 um, 17, 17 was such a gift to me. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother or sister is born for a time of adversity. And my friends, who were my sister, my sister-in-laws, 
my parents, my in-laws, my good friends in Mount Vernon that we moved back to were there for me. And then there were these unexpected friends, and I want to tell you of one unexpected friend and then one professional friend. Um, We had just moved back to Mount Vernon, so we were in Corvallis for about four months, and I kind of held it together during that time. I even sold our house by owner, packed up the house, the kids finished school, we moved back to Mount Vernon, and I completely fell apart. And we're at church at Bethany Covenant Church, and I see this man walking towards me who is my, one of my best friend's father. His name's Don Mowat. I don't know if anyone here knew him. And I had just, so he's my, the exact same age as my dad, just for context. So he's like a father figure to me. And I had just heard that he was diagnosed with cancer. So I decide I'm going to go give him a hug and tell him, I'm so sorry I heard about your cancer. So I walk up to him and I tell him this and hug him. And he doesn't let go. And he starts rocking me like a parent would rock a child and eventually lets go of me, and then holds my face in his hands. And by then the tears are coming, and he said, I can see that you are suffering, and I love you, and God loves you. And for me, that was the words of Teresa of Avila, who says that God has, Christ has no hands on earth but yours. Yours are his eyes to see the world. And it was in that moment of Dawn saying, I see your suffering, I see what you're going through, that I heard God saying, I see you, I see what you're going through. And of course, our circumstances didn't change overnight. I mean, I still had to feel my feelings. And during that same time, my friends noticed that I really wasn't doing so well, even though I had this new belief that God saw me through my friend Dawn. But my friends were like, "Uh, we think you need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, I I think I got this. I'm like, you don't have this. So they took my kids to the beach. I went to the doctor. And she said I had what was called situational depression and anxiety, which explained why I wanted to eat my fingers but had no appetite for real food. And she um, prescribed antidepressants, which I took for a year. And sometimes I still miss to this day. (laughs) And referred me to a psychotherapist named Jim. Actually, first to this woman who I didn't click with. And so, you know, if you have a therapist and you don't like him, you're free to fire him and find a new one. And he carried my mat. For about a year, I sat in his office looking out over Big Lake. And every week we checked in with my feelings. And he encouraged me to be honest. And he always said, let's turn towards what is disturbing you which I was so unused to. And if I gave a surface answer, he would say, and what's underneath that? So there was this invitation to go deeper and deeper into the wound. Instead of doing what we like to do, which is flee the wound, or put a Band-Aid on it and forget it. And I shared numerous dreams I was having. He He had a PhD in Jungian dream work, so that was helpful. And a lot of my dreams involved driving cars um, and then the brakes would go out or driving a car and then the driver who was me would become blind <laughs> or somebody's driving a car, me, on, a, on I-5 and all of a sudden the car turns into one of those children's pedal cars and everybody else is <laughs> zooming by. And I remember after talking about these dreams and my angst and my anger, he said, uh, where do you feel it in your body? And I said, in my stomach. 
And he said, and what does your body want to do? And I said, kick something. And I did a karate kick while I was sitting down. And he said, and is there a word that goes with that? And I said, yeah, it starts with an F. (laughs) And he said, okay, no cameras, let's hear it. And that for me was helpful to have a guide, a professional, to get me in touch with my anger. And then what is underneath the anger is grief. And I remember a few months after that having this aha experience, the kind where you look back and realize that something's happened and you didn't notice it was happening. I realized that I had forgiven Bernd and that I really liked myself. That instead of Bernd falling from grace, he had fallen into grace. And so had I. I came across this Jewish prayer a couple weeks ago, and it so encapsulates um, what I went through and what I think we all go through in our lives when we experience a crisis, whether it's infidelity, whether it's the loss of a person we love, whether it's the loss of a job, that these are opportunities. It goes like this. Once or twice in a lifetime... A man or a woman may choose a radical leaving, having heard lech lecha, go forth. God disturbs us toward our destiny by hard events and by freedom's now urgent voice, which explode and confirm who we are. We don't like leaving, but God loves becoming. So it's been 12 years. For a long time, I had a clock in my office that I had set without a battery on 227. I had a, a watch on my phone that, uh, on my watch, uh, my watch had an alarm that was at, uh, always went off at 227. And my students in class, when it would go off, they'd be like, why do you have an alarm for 227? I said, well, that's between me and God. And they'd be like, oh, please tell us. I'm like, no, I'm not telling you. Not a chance. I used to, used to find 227 to be a painful number. It's a good number. It was a day that we were found. It was a day that we were carried by our friends. My all-time favorite passage is uh, Matthew 25, where Jesus asks, uh, when you see someone who is uh, sick, someone who's thirsty, hungry, you give them something to eat, you do it as if you do it to me. We had friends who carried us, who gave us something to drink, who gave us something to eat. They saved us. God saved us. When the, when the fellow walks out on the mat with his mat on his shoulder, I've wondered why. Why did Jesus say, hey, pick up your mat and walk? Why didn't he just say, hey, get out of here. Go run, have fun, be like JD, run around a little bit. I think there was a reason I think it was a reminder for him that he had that mat, that that's who he used to be, but no longer. I carry a mat. Dina carries a mat. There's a lot of people who know our story. All the people in Corvallis, they heard it, all the details. The people in Mount Vernon heard our story, lots of details. You've heard a little bit of our story. People know our story. And we carry that mat as a reminder, not of, oh my gosh, that was horrible. But we carry that as a reminder of the woundedness and that God healed. And to carry it as a symbol of hope wherever we go. 
We celebrated 25 years of marriage last summer. On our 14th anniversary, it wasn't so fun. We were kind of like, oh, hey, we're married. (laughs) I wonder how this is going to go. Last summer, we, we were together. And we were together because people carried us. And we are grateful. So I invite you that if you need to be carried, have some friends do it. Carry you. If you have friends who need to be carried, be courageous. Step in. You will be a lifeline. Hard Hard to really quantify how good it's been. But we are grateful. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you are God. I'm thankful that you forgive us, that you forgave me. And God, I am profoundly thankful for my wife, Dina, who opened a crack to let grace, mercy, and kindness find its way in. I'm grateful for her forgiveness in my life, the opportunity to be restored and to be healed and to live life fully again. I pray this morning as our words have come that you uh, might use those words in ways of giving hope to others, either to be able to be carried or to carry others. May hope fill this room, this community, as it seeks to be good to those who are in desperate straits. I pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.